What do you think is surprising about that part of the state for someone who has never been here before? Well, I think the stereotype of California is like big stars, LA, heavy traffic, you know, that like bustling city life. And also like you can see that in Orange County and like San Francisco. But a lot of people are surprised when they realize how like underdeveloped some areas are. There's so much wilderness and vast expanses of places that just sometimes feel empty. In your mind's eye, picture a wild coastline, giant redwoods, huge rivers, farms, ranches, forests. 40% of the state's natural runoff water falls here, including a lot that gets sent to the southern part of the state to feed farming. You know, people find their ways into those places and build their own like communities. And that's sort of like where I live. So a lot of people are surprised when they come here because it's just so different from what they expected. This area makes up 11.5% of California's land, but it's home to less than 1% of the state's population. This episode explores the ways climate change is projected to affect day-to-day life for people in the North Coast region of the state. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm Shane Carter. The North Coast, as it's defined in California's fourth climate change assessment, stretches over 20,000 square miles and includes six counties, Mendocino, Humboldt, Del Norte, Lake, Trinity, and Siskiyou. This place, like the rest of coastal California, has been inhabited by indigenous people for at least 13,000 years. It stretches from the ancestral lands of the Tolua Dene and the Karuk in the north to the Pomo in the south. Today, the area is home to about 372,000 people. Six percent of those people are members of tribes, a higher proportion of indigenous residents than any other part of the state. The other 94% are settlers, like me, people whose families generally came to California sometime in the last 175 years. I spoke with four young people in this region. I am Talias, I am 15, and I live in Ukiah, California. Hi, my name is Sola Long. Um, I'm currently 17, and this is my sister. Hi, my name is Dora. Um, I'm Sola's little sister, and I am... 12. And where do the two of you live? Um, We're currently in Vancouver, Canada, but we go to a boarding school in Ukiah, California. And then fourth is Caitlin. You heard her voice at the beginning of the episode. I am 15 and I currently go to school at the Developing Virtue Secondary Girls School. And do you live on campus there or are you a local person who comes to school there each day? The boarding school is only about an hour from where I live. So I live in the same county, but it's um, a far enough distance that I choose to board. Ukiah sits right on Highway 101 at the southern end of the North Coast region. If you drive south two hours, you'll reach San Francisco, Head north from there, and in a little under five hours, you'll reach the Oregon border. With its population of 16,000 people, it is a mid-sized city for the North Coast. 
It's got houses. It's got stores. There's a downtown. It's like a, a more of a town than a city. In Ukiah, there's a lot of like wine business and also just normal office jobs, I suppose. I think there's a lot of、um, orchards, fruit orchards, like、um, on the side of the roads. As you move north toward Caitlin's hometown, the landscape and the economy get more rural. In my town, we happen to have a lot of farmers because we have good soil and easy access to water, and so there's、um, a lot of farming. There's also some ranchers, so they do have cattle. So you see a lot of、um, cows in the fields, and then some places up higher in the mountains, there's some logging activity as well. Caitlin's family has lots of dogs and chickens, and her home is surrounded by grass and trees. We live on the edge of a valley, so we're on a hill, and you can see mountains all around us, and so it's very beautiful. And you can also see the valley and like the town from where I live. In the North Coast region, small towns like this are spread across a vast wildland, meaning both forest and grassland that is currently unoccupied by humans. But that does not mean it's some kind of untouched primordial wilderness. This whole huge area bears the fingerprints of ongoing human activity. For thousands of years, the indigenous inhabitants of the region tended the land, especially by the use of fire. This cultural burning maintained healthy forests and meadows and supported the diverse plant and animal species that the original inhabitants used in their day-to-day -day lives. So, a Yurok woman walking through a coastal forest 500 years ago was in a tended landscape, one that bore the imprint of her society's interactions with the environment. Then, beginning around 1850, California settlers started to radically transform these forests and waterways through industries like mining and logging. The U.S. and California state governments took native land and outlawed traditional uses of fire. If you visited the North Coast or you live there, you're probably familiar with its incredible forests of coast redwoods. But you might be surprised to know that about 95% of California's old-growth redwood forests were cut down to feed the demand for lumber. What you see now is that last 5%. Wood from the North Coast built San Francisco and rebuilt it after the 1906 fire. Redwood railroad ties lay under tracks that knit together thousands of miles of U.S. territory. Redwood boards frame new homes all over the country during the housing boom after World War II, and that's not even mentioning the other types of forests on the North Coast that have been and still are harvested to produce lumber for buildings and furniture and utility poles. I'm not saying all the forests are gone. They're not. There's still a lot of forested land in the North Coast, and lumber is still a part of the economy in the region. But the mix of plant and animal species, the size of the trees, the density of the underbrush, and a million other ecological details, have been altered by our behavior over the past 175 years. Just like 500 years ago, if you walk through those forests today. What you see is the imprint of our society's interactions with the environment, our day-to-day -day practices, our industrialized capitalist economy. Usually, when we talk about the industrialization that has happened since the mid-1800s, like if you learn about it in class, we focus on the buildings that went up in cities like San Francisco: the electric lines being strung, factories being built, railroads. 
We talk about how those things changed people's day-to-day lives. And that's true. That is a big part of industrialization. But what it means is that we focus on where that redwood lumber was going to, not where it was coming from. But a lot of change happened in both places. The Ukiah that Caitlin, Talias, and Sola described, its small downtown, the office jobs, the agriculture and ranching and logging around the city, the highways leading to San Francisco, all of that is also a part of the industrialized world. This is the bigger context in which we all live now, no matter how urban or how rural our community. Within that context, we get to make choices about our day-to-day actions or our beliefs. Which brings me back to the young people I interviewed. When I talked with Sola, her younger sister Dora, and Caitlin, they were all students at a Buddhist boarding school on the outskirts of Ukiah. The school is located on the grounds of a monastery called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. Sola and Caitlin describe the campus for me. At school, the whole atmosphere there is very like serene and calming. And so I feel we have these beautiful sycamore trees and just sitting under them and just listening to the leaves and just admiring my surroundings like maybe with a book or something it's it's really it helps me like reset um on our campus we have a lot of nature so trees and the grass is yellow in the summer because there's droughts and stuff but in the winter it's green and we have peacocks on campus so you can usually see them walking around just roaming. The atmosphere on campus is reinforced by the school's Buddhist values. We have a strict no-kill policy and so we have a lot of wildlife so there's lots of birds and um, in we, we're kind of in the countryside so lots of greenery. Talias also attended a school south of Ukiah that has a specific philosophy about the environment. It is connected to a global movement of people all experimenting with building sustainable communities. It's a one-planet school, so there's a lot of going out, and we've got a huge garden. And what do you mean by it's a one-planet school? What does that mean? It means like um, it's an environmentally stable school, so they do everything they can to make it um, environmentalistic. (laughs) Sustainable. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell me, like, are there recycling of things or energy-saving things or water-saving things that are visible in your school? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, There's, I think there's a water recycling area, but they they do, like, um, this thing called a trash and show where you, like, take the recycling from, like, the whole school and make an outfit out of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was fun. We won. (laughs) (laughs) What did you make? Uh, It was like this big dress that was made out of um, recycled tires and um, like confetti that people had used. It was really fun. My North Coast interviewees all grew up learning about climate change and sustainability. They were encouraged to think about the impacts of their actions on the world around them. They were taught that our laws and our day-to-day behaviors will affect the intensity of climate change, and they were able to explain to me that the more greenhouse gas we emit, the more extreme those effects will be. But even in the best-case scenario, climate scientists project changes that we are going to feel in our everyday lives. What can I expect in the future? That is my question. Climate change is about two things. 
First are the actual physical changes we'll see on the planet, the ways weather patterns will shift over time. And then second is how that changing climate will affect living things, including us, people. What we experience will depend on our personal circumstances. How healthy are you? How much money does your family have? Do you live in a town where the government is preparing for climate change or not? These and dozens of other factors will determine how climate change affects the course of each of our lives. But to think about that, we need to begin with the climate itself. What are the projections for this region? Well, just like in other parts of the state, climate change is projected to show up in the North Coast region in lots of overlapping ways. I am going to focus on four projected changes. More heat, more wildfire, changes in precipitation, and fourth, sea level rise. We'll look at them one at a time. Part one. Heat. As I am guessing you probably know at this point, greenhouse gas emissions are warming our planet, and that increased heat underlies many of the climate change effects we're going to experience. So first, let's look at the issue of heat itself. Calculated over the last several decades, Ukiah's average maximum monthly temperature, or high temperature, for July has been about 93 degrees. And it's important to note that this is an average, which means that some years the hottest day of July was below 93, and some years it got hotter than that. In fact, the actual range is pretty big. The hottest July day ever recorded in Ukiah was 114 degrees, and the coolest July day topped out at only 61. But again, when you look at it across several decades, the average high temperature for July is 93. Climate models project an increase to that average. How much of an increase depends on our global greenhouse gas emissions. So right now, our emissions are still increasing every year. If we start to reduce those emissions by 2040, average summer temperatures are projected to rise by 6 degrees. However, if we keep on as we have been, then we could see an increase of 9 degrees and winter temperatures are projected to rise even more, 8 to 11 degrees. Now, what does this projected temperature increase actually mean for a person living in Ukiah? And what's the time frame? I asked Talias how he imagined the climate 20 years in the future. He was pretty optimistic. I feel like things will be different by the time I'm 35, but definitely not um, super crazy yet. And who knows, it might even be the solution might even be found. Here's what climate scientists say. By 2050, when Talias, Caitlin, Sola, and Dora are in their mid-40s, the average high temperature for July is projected to be 96 to 98 degrees Fahrenheit. 96 degrees if we succeed in significantly lowering greenhouse gas emissions in the next few years, 98 if we don't. So three to five degrees warmer than it currently is. In terms of day-to-day -day experience, those increasing average temperatures mean people living in Ukiah will experience more super hot summer days with temperatures over 110, more of those hot days in a row, more warm summer nights that make it hard to cool off at the end of an extremely hot day, and more mild winter days. This kind of temperature change has direct consequences for human health. 
Super hot summer days and multi-day heat waves can cause serious illness or death for children and older people, for agricultural workers, for pregnant women, for manual laborers. Those are direct impacts from heat. In other episodes, I've talked about the indirect impacts of heat on infrastructure. But here, I want to talk about ways that heat combines with other physical changes to affect ecosystems. I talked about this with Nancy Freitas, my collaborator on this podcast. Nancy is a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. She read the regional reports and listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed both of them. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies. She brought a scientist's view and answered questions that came up. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the episode called What is Climate Change? I asked Nancy what stood out to her in the report about this region. Well, one of the things that really caught my attention was the focus on coastal areas and fish migration, migratory patterns, um, especially salmon. And they were talking a lot in the report about changing water temperatures and sediment loads in rivers and how that has had a negative effect already on salmon runs and other fish as well. Climate change and management of our water resources will have like a significant effect on fishing in these areas and maintenance of, of ecosystems for fish. Yeah, I noticed that too, because there was that little pop-out box about the fish kill in, was it 2002? Yeah, and the potential for like harmful algal blooms and just like lots of different things that, that are kind of compounding and these domino effects that happen as water temperatures increase and as sediment loads increase and water quality decreases. Nancy mentioned that heat increases water temperature and warmer water makes HABs, harmful algal blooms, more common. During a HAB, certain types of algae grow out of control, killing thousands or hundreds of thousands of fish and other aquatic creatures. HABs can also make water dangerous for swimmers. This is bad for the natural world and also bad for the economy. Just think about what a HAB would mean for a person who makes their living from fishing or from tourism. Now, I had heard all this about HABs before, but I had never personally seen one until this past summer. And I have to say, experiencing a HAB felt a whole lot different than reading about it. So I want to take a detour here. I'll come back in a little while to the young people I interviewed. But first, I want to tell you two stories about heat and fish. One is my own story, and the second takes place in the North Coast region, in the Klamath River Basin. The setting for the first story, my story, is like Merritt in Oakland. Lake Merritt is surrounded by a park where people walk and picnic and play music almost every day. It's called a lake, but it's still connected to the bay by a channel that allows bay water to flow in and out of it. So here's what happened. One day, this past August, I went to walk around the lake with my mom. It was warm and sunny, so lots of people were out enjoying the area. The lake itself looked weird. The water was reddish brown, and it was filled with unusual fish. Big bat rays, 
schools of silvery anchovies, things we don't usually see there. Groups of people were gathered at the lakeside taking photos and talking. What I remember from that afternoon was the sunshine and a feeling of community as we pointed things out to each other and talked about what was going on. It wasn't just that there were unusual fish in the lake, it's that the fish were behaving strangely. Even people like me, who know basically nothing about fish biology or fish behavior, could see it. The anchovies were popping their heads up above the surface of the water and opening their mouths up really wide. The bat rays were sort of roving back and forth and periodically coming up to the surface. What I now know is that a hab, a harmful algal bloom, had spread across the bay. Fish fled out of the bay, up the channel, into the lake, seeking safer water. But there wasn't any safer water. The hab had spread into the lake too, and that's why the water was red. And the weird behavior we were seeing was the fish struggling to breathe because the hab was suffocating them. So the next morning, my sister went out to the lake, and she sent me photographs of thousands and thousands of dead fish. Anchovies, bat rays, these gigantic striped bass that I hadn't even seen the day before. There were piles of them floating at the edges of the water, more sunk to the bottom. They all died overnight. Now, months afterward, I remember that afternoon as a day of bizarre, awful contrasts. The sun and the feeling of community I experienced while watching the fish struggle. How did I not know what I was seeing? And worse, what would it have felt like if I had known? What if I made my living from the lake or fed my family from it? What if the fish in that lake were central to my cultural heritage, to my sense of who I am? Now, contrast my experience with this second, bigger fish story in the North Coast region. The setting is the Klamath River, which starts in Oregon and wends its way southwest out to the Pacific Ocean. Yuruk and Karuk people's traditional histories explain that their ancestors have harvested salmon and other fish in the Klamath River since time immemorial, and they have oral accounts identifying special fishing locales in the river basin. Archaeology aligns with those traditional histories. Researchers have found evidence of salmon fishing going back more than 5,000 years in those traditional fishing spots. So, in other words, their cultural connection to fish and fishing practice in this basin is thousands of years older than Christianity. Then, about 100 years ago, after draining and redirecting a lot of water in the upper Klamath Basin, the United States began offering land to homesteaders who set up farms and ranches in this upper basin region. Between 1922 and 1964, four dams were built along the river in both Oregon and California. The changes opened up agricultural land and produced electricity, but reduced the amount of water in the river and obstructed fish migrations. Fish populations dropped significantly. 
So the changes in the river basin gave rise to new farming and ranching communities, while at the same time undermining the cultural practices and the livelihoods of indigenous communities. And now, climate change, including higher temperatures and drought. In 2021, the situation along the river was catastrophic. Due to drought conditions, the Bureau of Reclamation released zero water to farmers and ranchers in the upper basin. Frustrated farmers had no choice but to fallow land and significantly reduce the amount of food they produced. For them, decreased water is a threat to their livelihoods and to the way of life their families have established over the past few generations. But even with the irrigation cuts, there was still too little water in the river. Downstream, the warmer air temperatures plus the low flow levels meant warmer water and the spread of fish-killing parasites. Historically, there have been two runs of Chinook salmon in the Klamath River each year, a spring run and a fall run. That spring, Yurok and Karuk tribal leaders sounded the alarm on a massive fish kill in the Klamath River, Their monitoring of salmon indicated that over 95% of the juveniles in the river that year were infected with the deadly sea shasta parasite. In a video that year, Frankie Myers, the Yurok vice chair, described the looming extinction of the river's fish as an existential threat for his people and their culture. That was just the start of the crisis. In late June, as you might remember, there was an intense heat wave that lasted over two weeks. It was called the heat dome in the news. Record-setting temperatures topped 100 degrees for multiple days in a row. While the spring-run juveniles were dying from C. shasta infections in the river, a second problem developed. Two million baby fall-run salmon were at the Iron Gate fish hatchery, just about ready to be released into the Klamath River. But that wasn't possible because of the parasites. Going into the river would have killed them. California Department of Fish and Wildlife worked with the Yurok, Karuk, and Hoopa to save the fish. On July 7th and 8th, staff loaded over a million baby fish onto trucks and drove them 150 miles to Trinity River Hatchery. The temperature both days, while they were moving them, was 105 degrees. The plan actually worked. The fish had time and space to grow in a safe environment. And then finally, in November 2021, they were released into the Klamath River. This was a hard-won success story for that generation of fish. But then, summer 2022, another fish kill, this time because of debris from a wildfire washing into the river. This story is ongoing, and it's about to enter a new phase. 
In November 2022, after decades of activism by indigenous groups and other environmentalists, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission took a major step toward removing the four dams along the river. Deconstruction is set to start in 2024. The dam removal won't change how much rain falls. Climate change is still projected to bring warmer weather, drought years with low water flows, and other disturbances. But dam removal is expected to improve the health of the whole ecosystem. It will expand pathways for fish migration and restore downstream flows that have been tightly controlled since the dams were built. The tribes and scientists believe it will give the fish a fighting chance to survive, to avoid extinction. And with their survival, the cultural survival of the peoples who have lived in the Klamath River Basin for thousands of years. When you hear terms like HAB or reduced water allocation, ecosystem health, dam removal, they're all empty, emotionless concepts unless you think about what it feels like to experience them. That distance between factual knowledge and lived experience is why I asked the young people I interviewed about their personal experiences with extreme weather-related events. Climate change projections can give you an outline of how the physical world may be different over the next few decades, but personal accounts can help us imagine our future in more relatable ways. That's the end of the fish and heat detour, which brings me back to the interviews and the next part of this episode. Part two. Wildfire. Caitlin, Sola, Dora, and Tolias all experienced heat waves, but when I asked them to tell me about an experience they had with an extreme natural event, they did not talk about heat or habs. When I was, I think, three or four, um, we lived on this place called Greenfield. It's a big ranch, um, a little bit north of Ukiah. And there was a big lightning storm. And then the next day there was fires for like the next week. So we got evacuated. I just remember uh, my mom taking me out of the house and running up the hill with my dad. And there was this fire truck outside. And they were like, you guys got to go right now, right now. And it was just kind of scary. Do you know from talking to your parents about it afterward, if they carried anything with them or if they were just like, rushing, leaving stuff behind? Um, I think we just grabbed a box of just like pictures and then just got out of there. And so having had that experience in the last few years, because I know there have been fires not super far from Ukiah, what do you think about going into each fire season now? Um, I'm a little bit more adapt to it now, so it's not as scary, but I I still know what could happen. So I, it, it It does keep me on my feet. With changes in the climate, including temperature increases and changes in precipitation, more on that later, we can expect to see even more wildfires. That means more people experiencing the same thing as Talias and his family. Danger, evacuation, fear, a sudden reckoning with the question of what to take with you, if anything. And worse, injury, death, loss of homes and businesses. Currently, the most common cause of wildfire in the North Coast region is lightning. But a second major cause of fire is human activity in what is known as the wildland-urban interface. 
This means areas of housing that are located right next to wildland areas. So, for example, a small town sandwiched between two forest areas, or the homes on the edge of a city that butt up against a state park. In the North Coast region, over 75% of people live in the wildland-urban interface, and as populations in the region grow, fire danger from human activities will also increase. Little mistakes, everyday actions, can turn into catastrophes. On July 27, 2019, just a couple weeks before school began for the year, a rancher eight miles north of Ukiah was trying to close up an underground yellow jacket nest by hammering a metal stake into the ground. The hammering generated a spark. And in the dry landscape, the spark turned into a wildfire called the Ranch Fire that raged out of control. On that same day when the ranch fire started, a second fire, the River Fire, began just 15 miles south of the developing Virtue Boarding School, where Sola and Caitlin were students. I think it was um, south, but then eventually um, it got really bad to where we were surrounded by fires on all three sides of our campus. We were coming back from lunch and just a thick black cloud was on the horizon. And we were like, huh, what's that? And the cloud slowly came over us and it literally looked like it was like seven o'clock at night. And um, the air got really bad. Like we had to wear masks to go to the dining hall. You know, people were coughing and your eyes would sting if you were outside too long. Because there was too much ash in the air and you could see it on the ground as well. There was like ash and you could barely see a person 15 feet away. And the sun was like a deep red dot. It was like not even shining anymore. I remember seeing that it kind of looked like a apocalypse. And the next day school was canceled. Were you scared? Um, We were scared because at one point we got a call to pack our to-go bags. That's when we knew like, it's serious and it's like very near to us. But um, it never got to the point where we had to evacuate. So we're grateful for that. But it was very scary in the moment. The combined fires were known as the Mendocino Complex. By the time they were finally put out, 160 days later, they had burned a total of 459,000 acres, making the Mendocino Complex the biggest fire in recorded California history up to that time. That record was broken in 2020, and then again in 2021, by fires that were more than double the size of the Mendocino complex, and they all happened in the northern part of the state. As I mentioned, historically, lightning is the most common cause of wildfires in the North Coast region. Individual human activity is an increasingly common cause. A third, less common, but also notable cause of fires is power lines and other electrical equipment. Between 2014 and 2019, PG&E equipment started over 1,500 fires in the state. Most of those were small, stopped before they spread, but some of them grew into massive wildfires. The problem is especially bad during hot, windy weather in the late summer and fall. By then, it's been months since the last rains and vegetation is at its driest. 
To reduce this fire risk, PG&E implements a less-than-ideal solution, the public safety power shutoff. In October 2019, after three months of hot, dry weather, while the Mendocino complex fires continued to burn, meteorologists predicted windy weather. So PG&E decided to shut off power in Ukiah. Here are Sola and her sister Dora. We had power outages for, I I forget, it must have been at least three to four days, right? Yeah. And we didn't have school and it was kind of scary. Why was it scary? Because, like, at night when we came back, um, like, the whole dorm would be pitch black, and then everybody would, like, grab hands, and we would go in, and it was, like, kind of like a haunted house. It was so scary. And then we would all, like, everybody would take out their flashlights, but some people, like me, we didn't have flashlights. So then, like, everywhere we went, it was kind of, like, creepy like the bathroom there was no lights and stuff and it was not very pleasant psps events are disruptive for families schools and businesses they're expensive logistical challenges for cities and they're also a perfect example of how poorly adapted infrastructure can compound the effects of climate change whether they are caused by lightning human activity or electrical equipment annual wildfires have become the norm Every year in my town or near my town, there's a large wildfire almost every single year. And so that's something that, you know, every summer, I just, there's some fear that, you know, maybe we're going to lose our house this time. Fire has always been a part of the California ecology, but the current wildfire situation is a human-created problem that was caused by a combination of factors. Partly, it's an issue of forest management, Beginning in the late 1800s, we enacted policies of fire suppression and outlawed indigenous cultural burning practices that kept flammable brush from growing out of control. Plus, as I mentioned earlier in the show, industrialization changed forests. Compared to 175 years ago, there's less biodiversity, fewer old giant trees, more small trees, more flammable brush, denser growth. And now, climate change is creating better conditions for fire in the form of hotter, drier landscapes. Climate scientists project a significant increase in the amount of land that burns each year in the North Coast region. Wildfire can seem overwhelming, but there are ways to address it, both at the household and the government level. Caitlin and her family do what they can to reduce the danger to their home. Every year, brush dies, and brush can be like, small grass or small bushes near the ground. And so that type of brush is very easy to catch on fire. And it just, it helps fire along. It's like gas to a match. And so it's really important that um, people who live in rural areas clear away as much of that brush as they can from the ground, make piles and have their own safe and responsible bonfires in which they get rid of that brush. And it's important that the fires are safe, otherwise you can just start a wildfire. And so you have to do it on specific burn days that are um, allowed by the police, I mean the fire department. And so clearing away that brush helps a lot. And of course it won't necessarily stop it, but it can keep a fire from getting too explosive. And so that's something that's really important in this area. Statewide, 60% of forest land is owned and managed by federal, state, or local government, not by individuals or companies. 
That percentage is even higher in the North Coast region. Nancy and I talked about what that meant for adaptation in small rural communities. Individual action um, in these like more rural areas is both required of them and more limited in certain ways. So that becomes kind of a personal responsibility, even though it, it's like a societal problem. Um, and then with these huge wildfires that are coming through and that are increasing in intensity and frequency, clearing brush around your land is super important, which is what Caitlin was talking about. But then she also mentioned, you know, if a, a massive wildfire comes through, even if we've cleared out the understory brush um, and have done controlled burns throughout the year to make sure that the land around our house is protected, you know, sometimes we, there's the potential that we won't be able to protect our property. So they're taking these individual actions, but there's the potential for them to be superseded by these, these massive events. Responding to the wildfire problem has to happen and is happening at multiple levels, from household to community to state to federal. Something that I think was interesting about this report was um, these coalitions that are beginning in the North Coast region that link different stakeholders. So like federal, state, local government, and NGOs and people who are living in these communities. And tribal governments. Yeah, and tribal governments to work on these like climate-related solutions and management of the lands that are both state lands and you know, private lands and public lands. California has increased funding to help people harden their homes against fires and to manage forest lands, including through the use of prescribed burns. Groups like the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network, the Western Klamath Restoration Partnership, and the Humboldt County Prescribed Burn Association are all working to teach people how to use fire as a tool to improve the health of forest ecosystems. Increased heat and people moving out into the wildland-urban interface are both reasons why we're seeing an increase in wildfire. Another piece of the puzzle has to do with water. And that brings us to... Part three, changing precipitation. This winter has been unusually intense in California. It began when nine atmospheric river storms hit the state between December 27th of 2022 and January 16th, 2023, dropping almost an average year's worth of rain in less than a month. On January 9th, 34 million people, 90% of the state's population, were under a flood watch. Wind and waterlogged soil brought down thousands of trees across the state, which, in addition to crushing buildings and cars, pulled down power lines. Counted across all the days of the storm, over 2 million people lost power, 400,000 of them on a single day, and a lot of them were without electricity for days on end. 22 people died as a direct result of the storms. Homes and businesses were flooded with both rainwater and coastal storm surges. Roads, including major highways, were closed because of everything from broken levees to sinkholes to destroyed bridges to landslides. On social media, you could see videos of helicopter rescues and pileups of floating cars, people boating or kayaking or paddling surfboards through flooded streets. In one video, a man uses a long stick and what looks like a garage door to raft across a San Francisco intersection. Current estimates put the storm damage at over $1 billion. The statewide intensity of this winter's storms may have been unusual, but the Russian River Valley, where Ukiah is located, is no stranger to flooding. 
I remember there was one year where it just kept raining and it kept raining and the rivers ended up flooding over into the streets because um and then some people were like just slipping off and disappearing which was very terrifying and we tried to stay home. You mean off the sides of the road, like people were slipping off the- Yeah, like the, the water was coming up so high that it was covering the road, yes. And then they would slip in and be carried away by the current. So that was very scary. And then like, you know, places in towns like Ukiah were getting flooded. And so like gas stations and restaurants and hotels, they couldn't open. So that was, but that was a very extraordinary year for us because it rarely rains that much. We have a pretty even, you know, seasonal change. Flooding also affected the school. Um, we also had to close down for about one or two days. And that was because um, the day students couldn't access the campus because the road outside of our campus was closed because it was flooded. Generally speaking, climate scientists project that the North Coast region will see a slight increase in average annual precipitation. But that average hides significant variation from year to year. In fact, the scientists who wrote the North Coast Regional Report used the phrase precipitation whiplash to describe the climate toward the end of the century. This means huge swings back and forth between flood years and drought years, a super wet year with several winter megastorms like we experienced this year, followed by several unusually dry years, and then another super wet year. Rains starting later in the winter and ending earlier in the spring, plus, because of warmer winters, less of that precipitation will fall as snow. We could be seesawing back and forth between the twin destructions of intense storms and drought. Just like with floods, young people in California have experience with intense drought. Caitlin remembered the drought that began in the winter of 2013-2014 when she was in elementary school. She told me her family wasn't on a city water line. Instead, they had their own well. And our source of water didn't go out too much. But in other places, it was really devastating for other people. And also just watching the vegetation sort of like like just shrivel up and die. And, you know, normally in the summertime, everything's quite lush and green. And so then that was, it was really different, you know, and it was like almost apocalyptic, I think. Caitlin's family was fortunate. During droughts, the people most likely to struggle with water access are those who have private wells and those living in small towns. Adding to water infrastructure, digging deeper wells or adding more water treatment can be very expensive. And households and small towns often don't have the necessary funds. I have friends who lived in more urban areas and it really hit them hard because they didn't have like a source of water apart from the city. And so all of a sudden they say you don't have any water and then you're just scrambling to get water. And it's really difficult and all the places are selling out. Do you know if the friends of yours who scrambled and bought a, lunch, a bunch of water... Was it because the town they were in actually ran out or was it because they were worried that they were going to run out? So the place they lived was hit very hard. And I'm pretty sure, I th I'm not absolutely positive, but I think their water went out, out. Because I remember being at their house and having to get water from like this giant like jug, like this plastic jug. And then their dad would have to do water runs where he would have to go out and buy more water. And it was... It was just really odd to see because 
I mean, people just expect water to run out of their faucets at all times. And so when that doesn't happen, it makes you take a step back. Caitlin's friends lived in Willits, a small city of about 5,000 people. I did a little research to find out what happened there. So here's the story. Willits gets its water from two reservoirs, which mostly get filled by rain each year. Normally, that area got an average of 51 inches of rain every year, but in 2013, they had just under 17 inches. By midwinter, after two big winter storms, the reservoirs were still only 50% full and no rain was on the horizon. So with that in mind, in January 2014, the town's water utility announced that it had enough water for only 100 more days. They limited households of four people to 150 gallons a day for everything, drinking, cooking, washing clothes, bathing, etc. Nobody was supposed to be washing their car or watering their lawn. That 150 gallons a day was about 50 gallons less than average use. Water for businesses was also rationed. In nearby Brook Trails Township, the limit was even lower, 110 gallons a day. But luckily, rain came. It replenished the local reservoirs, and by late March, water levels were back to normal. The town never actually ran dry. But pause there for a second. Think about how January and February must have felt for the people as they lived through it. No one knew how things were going to go. You can see people's anxiety in newspaper articles and city documents from those months. Business owners were already feeling the effects of water rationing, and they worried about what would happen to their businesses if the water completely dried up. And families had to wonder, can we afford to buy enough bottled water? What if stores run out? And how are we going to keep clean, do the laundry? That feeling of uncertainty, of near crisis, is also part of climate change. So then, what happened with Caitlin's friends? If they were on the Willett City water system, they did not actually run out of water. Maybe they shifted over to bottled water as a way of controlling water use in the household. Maybe they lived just beyond the city and had a private well that ran dry. I think what's actually important here is that as an elementary schooler, Caitlin picked up on the worry in the household. She noticed a change in habits as the family responded to the drought, and she wondered about it. The story didn't just end as soon as the rains came. The effects of drought linger. Plants and trees still bear the stresses that come from months or years of dry soil, making them more vulnerable to disease and fire. Human communities also have to respond and adapt. In fall of 2014, the state water board told both Willits and Brook Trails Township that they could not approve any more new water connections, meaning no new houses or commercial buildings, because their water systems couldn't serve them. That order was eventually lifted, but for a while, anyone who was planning on building a new house on a piece of land they had just bought or a new business had to pause indefinitely. Ultimately, both towns set out to strengthen their water systems to adapt them to better handle droughts. Willett spent more than $2 million on emergency backup wells and water treatment infrastructure made possible by grants from state and federal government. According to their website, Brook Trails is doing something similar. So that's heat, fire, and changing precipitation. Now, part four. Sea level rise. 275 miles north from the San Francisco Bay is another bay. The Weeot name for it is Wiki. 
California settlers called it Humboldt Bay, in honor of a famous German scientist. Across California, the U.S., and the whole world, many of our densest population centers lie on the coast. That's true in the North Coast region, too. About 80,000 people, over 20% of the region's whole population, are concentrated in Eureka and Arcata, two cities on the shores of Wheatley Humboldt Bay. Those are small cities by statewide standards, but they're the biggest population centers in the North Coast. Because of tectonic activity, the land on this part of the coast is sinking at the same time the sea is rising. When you add the two together, sea level is rising faster here than in any other U.S. city along the Pacific coast. Here's Nancy again. For this specific area, even the most moderate sea level rise scenario, so like one to two to three feet um, of sea level rise by 2100, has the potential to completely inundate certain areas of Humboldt Bay and to expand the capacity of the bay by like 60% or more, and then convert areas that are like estuaries to mudflats and, you know, like just totally displace the ecosystem that exists around that bay. And that, that was pretty astounding to me that the lowest sea level rise projection would cause that kind of change. Because if we stay on the current path that we're on, we will likely surpass that low sea level rise projection. In 2018, the state published a sea level rise guidance document, and it projects 1.5 feet of sea level rise in Wheatley Humboldt Bay by 2050, with three to four feet by 2100. And as a reminder, we talk about sea level rise, but it's not just sea level rise. It's sea level rise plus tidal changes, plus El Nino events, plus you know, storm surges. Um, So those two to three feet that's inundating the most populous area of that region will will not just be two to three feet. It will be more during other time periods and has the potential to be much more catastrophic than just those initial projections of water moving inland. Yeah. And there's big infrastructure right in that area. So they've got like sewage treatment and water treatment that is right there. Yeah. And power plants and like decommissioned nuclear facilities. As part of their sea level rise adaptation plan, Humboldt County did a detailed analysis to show what would happen to different parts of the landscape and infrastructure in Eureka when high tides, storms, and different wave heights combine with different amounts of sea level rise. I've included a link to the document on the Future Imperfect website in case you want to look closely at the scenarios. But to give you a sense, here's a sample situation. A very high tide overlaps with a winter storm. What happens? Well, waves eat at the foundation of an old waterfront railroad track. Seawater overtops or breaches the dikes and levees that line much of the coast. Parts of town are under one to three feet of water, and so is the southbound side of Highway 101. It'll be shut down for several hours at least. Gas and water lines are also underwater, which will be a problem if they need to be repaired because crews won't be able to get to them for a while. So let's put that together with sea level rise. Now remember, that scenario is a very high tide overlaps with a winter storm. At our current sea level, there is a 2% chance that this scenario will happen in any given year. But by 2050, with over a foot of sea level rise, 
that increases to a 50% chance every year. Basically, a coin flip. Most communities can't afford to absorb that kind of persistent damage year after year. So Humboldt County is now working on adaptation projects to address sea level rise. This includes both hard infrastructure and also natural solutions that provide flood protection while strengthening ecosystems. You also just heard Nancy mention a decommissioned nuclear facility. Right next to Wiki Humboldt Bay is the Humboldt Bay Independent Spent Fuel Storage Installation, which I'm just going to call the storage facility. It's the storage facility for the now-closed Humboldt Bay Power Plant, a nuclear power plant that operated there for 13 years, from 1973 to 1976. Now, nationwide, the situation with nuclear waste is very complicated, so I'll just say that after they shut down the plant, they still had to store the spent fuel there, on location. There was nowhere else to send it. Then in 1987, again, simplifying the story, a plan emerged. All the nuclear waste from all over the U.S. would be stored at a central site built by the federal government. But this site still has not been built, and U.S. towns, states, and the federal government continue to argue over where to build the storage facility and how to transport all the nuclear waste to it, among a lot of other issues. Which is why, today, there are 37 tons of nuclear waste in a facility up on a bluff only about 100 feet from the edge of the bay. 44 feet, which is the name of a project dedicated to addressing this problem, takes its name from the fact that the waste is stored at an elevation of 44 feet above sea level, and that 44 years from now, the site is projected to be threatened by sea level rise. They point out that the facility is surrounded by low-lying land, meaning sea level rise plus high tides will likely turn the bluff into an island within the next few decades. Waves could then erode the island where the waste is stored. Saltwater could inundate and damage the storage containers themselves, allowing them to leak. It sounds like a bad scenario. Nuclear waste remains dangerous for a long, long time. We need to keep it safely stored for another 10,000 years. And here we are, less than 100 years into the process, and already facing problems. Even if everyone came to an agreement tomorrow about a federal storage facility, it would still take years to get the storage facility designed and built and the waste moved into it. So 44 feet wants local community members and decision makers to incorporate possible sea level rise scenarios into their planning for the waste facility. That means instead of just planning to maintain the waste storage by the bay until a federal site opens up, they ask things like, what do we need to do differently to keep the facility safe when we reach 3 inches or 6 inches or 12 inches of sea level rise? How do we know when we're getting close to an emergency we can't manage? And if that happens, what's our plan? Can we move the waste somewhere else? What do we need to do ahead of time to prepare for that possibility? Nancy told me this kind of planning is called decision-making under deep uncertainty, or DMDU for short. I read about a few different ways of doing this, but as a former teacher, I have to say, they sound like a more complicated, more high-stakes version of what teachers are trained to do. When you walk into your classroom, have a plan A, and a plan B, and a plan C for what you're going to do, keep an eye on how things are going, and shift course from one plan to another as conditions change. And meanwhile, always be thinking about the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year.
In a time when climate change is altering our world in complex ways, this kind of thinking seems pretty important, especially for people working in government and essential services. They need to be thinking about risk and uncertainty and adaptations and benchmarks that let us know when we're succeeding or when it's time to change course. But what about the rest of us, just in our everyday lives? Like, what if you're in your teens right now and you learn about the causes of climate change and some of its projected effects? Uncertainty about the future is normal for every generation. When I was a teen, I worried about nuclear war maybe happening or a pandemic, who knew what the future held. I think what's unusual for this generation, though, is the mix of what we do know and what we don't. We do know our actions are causing climate change. We do know we can reduce the intensity of that change by reducing our emissions. But we don't know exactly how long it's going to take, politically, culturally, economically, to make those changes. We have projections for the changes we're facing, but climate research is ongoing. Projections get fine-tuned and updated, and even differences that sound small, slightly longer heat waves, slightly faster sea level rise, those things will have big impacts on the lives of people who experience them. So if you're growing up now, how do you think about this mix of knowledge and uncertainty for the future? I'm going to end with a few more words from Sola and then Caitlin. We've already faced some change. Every year there's either fires or floods for us. Sola told me she's basically thinking about two things at once, the big picture about climate and then also her own personal future. When you're picturing that, do those two things work together in your head or do you kind of think about them separately? Like, do you think about your own personal choices and then think, oh, but climate change could affect that? Or do they kind of exist in separate parts of your mind? I think to some extent they they um, they relate to each other because just because like everyday living, the climate is such a big part of our everyday. So without a healthy environment, we can't pursue the things we want to do. In that sense, I think it relates. But when I personally think about it, like career choice versus climate change, they're kind of two different topics in my mind, but they do relate. So at school, um, I feel like climate change is only talked about in school. And so we talk about it with our teachers if they bring it up or in like meetings with the school. But really, um, the feeling I get when I'm at school is like, it isn't really taken back with us. Like, we do it at school, and then we go back to the dorm, and we just, you know, behave as usual. And I think there's a lot of like consumer culture at my school, because everyone's always trying to like, buy the next best thing. Um, but at home, it's really incorporated into our daily lives. And so, like, it's very rare that I will do something and not think about how it affects the world around me. Do you, would you say that, that climate change is something that you worry about very often? Is it in the background? Like how anxiety producing for you is it? I don't worry about it too often, but I always try to do my best into improving the situation rather than focusing on the way that it's going to affect my life possibly in the future. And so I want to do as much as I can to avoid those types of situations and not dwell on them too much. 
This was the last regional episode for Future Imperfect, but not the final episode of the show. I have a little more tape to share, both about fire and water. Plus, Nancy and I are planning to do one final conversation about what we've each learned since we started this project back in late 2019. If you want to learn more about climate change in the North Coast region, check out the Future Imperfect resources at calglobaled.org. You'll find links about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.